Many of you are familiar with the term rope-a-dope, which was coined by Muhammad Ali. If you're not familiar with it, it had been his strategy for a while, but he told everyone about it after his fight in 74 with George Foreman, where he beat a younger, many thought stronger, faster opponent. Uh, turned out not to be the case, or at least not enough to win the fight. But he said, what I did is I, I did the rope-a-dope where I leaned on the ropes, I covered my head, and I just let him wail on me and punch me and punch me and punch me and, until he punched himself out. He was so tired, he was so exhausted, and then I turned the tables on him and laid him out. It's an incredible story. I don't know if you follow boxing at all or not, but I do a little here and there. The stories of triumph and things are always very exciting. But the notion of letting someone feel like they're winning like, oh my goodness, I've got this guy on the ropes. We even use that as an idiom in our language. I've got you on the ropes. Well, it might feel like you've got someone on the ropes and they're playing the old rope-a-dope, meaning you're the dope. Well, I hear something like rope-a-dope and, and, and I think of this kind of term when I get to Ezra chapter 4. And I read about how God's enemies seem to have the people of Judah on the ropes. Absolutely. And not just for one round, but for a long, long time. Wailing on them, wailing on them, to the point where they can't even fight back or punch back. They're stuck there just protecting themselves in absolute defensive mode. I think of rope-a-dope when I think about how God works even in our hearts, by the way. What is it that we do outside of Christ? We rebel against him. We run away from him. We say, Lord, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'll go my own way. I'll make my own righteousness. I will become good enough. I will become kind enough. I will do enough volunteer hours in order to become righteous and stand in your presence. I don't need Jesus. Or people go in the opposite direction. I don't even want Jesus. I'm going to fight against you and punch against you by doing all sorts of wicked things, throwing myself into immorality and fornication and fleshly pursuits. And he often just lets us punch ourselves out. And then we get so tired. And we, I got nothing left. And then it's a one-punch knockout. And you might say, hold on, that's a horrible... Why don't we say instead he picks us up and hugs us and carries us out of the ring? No, no, no. The old self, the flesh, the old Calvin, the old Sean, the old Christie who was fighting against him, he knocks right out. In fact, he puts to death. And then out of that rises a new creation. It is a beautiful thing. In fact, there's even shades of this, I think, in that parable that Jesus told about the, the shepherd who leaves the 99 and he goes after the one, the one who is wandering away. And that lamb is running. Have you ever seen a lamb run? I watch videos of animals a lot on the internet because that's where my joy comes from a lot of the time. And I, I'll tell you what, a lamb can run. And they just book it and they run, run, run. And the shepherd just follows, got the staff, walking along, and knows eventually it's going to run out of steam. It's going to fall over in the hot desert sun. It's going to, and that's when he's going to come upon it, pick it up, put it on his shoulders, and bring it back. That is how he works in pursuit of us. But it's also how God seems to work throughout the scriptures in dealing with his enemies. There are times when it seems like God and his people are on the ropes and Satan and the enemies of God are winning and they have turned the tables and they have decisively got the advantage and yet... They eventually punch themselves out, and then God says, all right, now it's my turn. And he brings victory to his people. And how his people act during those extended periods where they do not have the upper hand indicates whether or not they are truly his people. Now, at first blush, a passage like this 
might seem like it's worth skipping over or just skimming over very quickly. I'm being an irrelevant collection of kind of inter-office memos from thousands of years ago that have no real bearing on our lives today. However, I suggest this passage has never been more relevant for the life of the church than it is right now. As we read about persistent opposition to God's people and their work using intimidation, mischaracterization, and outright lies to achieve it, and even being successful at turning the tide against the Lord for a time so that their work for him grinds to a halt. And when we find ourselves in that situation, it is so easy to get disheartened and to say, forget the whole thing. Obviously, we've lost our steam, we've lost our blessing, whatever the case, cash it in. We've been on the ropes too long. Now, the backstory here, of course, we can't give the whole thing, but in case you're joining us for the first time, is that the people of God have been in exile for 70 years because of their sin. God allowed them to be taken into Babylon. They were there for some time, and then Persia came in and took over. And the king of Persia was kind enough to say, I'm going to let you people go back to Judah, back to your promised land, your ancestral homeland, and rebuild your temple. And there, worship God. And while you're worshiping him, put in a good word for old Cyrus. That was his name, Cyrus. And so they went back. They quickly rebuilt the altar and began offering daily sacrifices, worship to God. And then, not long after that, they laid the foundation for the temple and started building. But then, last time, we saw that the people who lived in the land already when they returned, these are Samaritans who worshipped Yahweh, the true God, but also worshipped him alongside many other gods and idols, offered to help them build the temple. Hey, let us in on this as well. But the people under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, refused to go the easy route and compromise. They declined the offer, said, sorry, the king of Persia said we should do the building, not us and everyone else in the land. And our God has called us to be a set-apart people, which is what holy means, a holy people, or as we said last time, a peculiar people. And so we will do this work ourselves. And at the beginning of this chapter then, we see how quickly they turn from Howdy, neighbor, can I help you out there? To we are going to destroy you and stop you from making any progress at all. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses of Israel said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. Then, verse 4, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then our text for today begins with another letter to another king, Artaxerxes. It's an immediate about face. And here in our passage today, after getting the broad strokes of what the enemies of Israel were doing, we get an example of the sort of smear campaign that was carried out very strategically against God's people. Now, what would be very easy to miss, and you probably, unless you have a good study Bible, have even missed it as you've read through the Old Testament, is that in this chapter, starting with verse 6, there is a pretty big flash forward in time. 
Okay, so it, it goes from, he started describing as they just started building the temple and they, they haven't gotten it really going and the, the thing gets shut down by their enemies. He jumps forward in time in verse 6 to talk about King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, and then jumps forward again in verse 7 to talk about King Artaxerxes. These are kings who reigned after the temple had already been built. At the end of this chapter, he's going to end the flash forward and go back to the main timeline and pick up where he left off. So there's this jump ahead. Now, this might seem strange to us, but it was quite normal in ancient histories, showing that this bit of history is part of a pattern of things that were happening. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that especially there, patterns are important. Read the book of Judges. It's the same pattern again and again and again. The whole Old Testament is the same pattern of people rebel. God allows them then to experience some kind of reproof or rebuke or punishment. And then he comes in and saves them when they come to themselves and cry out for help, for aid. That's the pattern here. And, and we also see that there's tying together what God has already accomplished. The people who first received this book and read it and said, oh, a history of what happened here after the return from exile, they know how the temple story ends. Perhaps when they first read this, they don't know how the whole thing ends. So the, the author, I believe Ezra, is tying together something that's already done. God's already been faithful with their contemporary struggle to build the walls and fortify the walls, to show them, look, God did it before. He can and will do it again. I know people often want to see how the Bible fits together, the different books of the Bible, and people are often interested, too, in how the Old Testament world and the New Testament world fit in with secular history or profane history. Uh, so let's just take a second here and, and look at these two kings that are mentioned. The first one is Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. If you take notes in your Bible, maybe put a little star there in verse 6. This guy is the king who married Esther in the book of Esther. Yes, we read through that, studied through that not that long ago. Same guy, so you can kind of line those up and click them together. The other one, Artaxerxes, is the king whose cupbearer was Nehemiah in the book of these are all softballs. Nehemiah, yeah, which is coming up next. Probably intended to be one big book, but yeah, so he's going to come back into play later after this flash forward, after we've established and resolved all this stuff with the building of the temple. This is all going to come back into view. But after Xerxes, who the guy, remember, kicked his wife to the curb and married Esther, after he died, his son, Artaxerxes, took the throne and he brought his mother, Queen Vashti, back out of exile and had her serve as queen mother. Apparently, she had gotten really bitter during her time in exile because when she gets back, if you read the secular history, she pushed him to do some very brutal things. And it's interesting to kind of contrast then uh, two different people's exiles coming to an end and how they respond to it. But here is a new king, a hard-nosed hard king who is trying to prove to the world that he is worthy of standing in his father's shoes and in, not in his father's shadow, but as a man in his own right. And that is uh, exactly what the enemies of Israel would like to play upon. So Artaxerxes has the throne and the enemies of Israel have two real goals as they sit down to pen a letter to him. One is they want to flatter the king. And two is, they want to slander the Jews. 
If we can do these two things, we'll have succeeded, and we can probably get him to shut them down. All the while making some very wild claims about God's people. Aside, these letters here were written in Aramaic. They're dropped as is into the text. They're not translated into Hebrew like the rest of the Old Testament. They're just dropped in as Aramaic. And then as Ezra keeps writing all the way into chapter 6, whether he's giving us the text of a letter or not, it's all in Aramaic, which is a nightmare for pastors preparing lessons unless they've studied their Aramaic. Luckily, I have English Bibles that I can read, and then I know what it says. So that's this interesting note. You might want to put a little note in your margin. Aramaic, it suddenly switches. And I think maybe part of this is just Ezra saying, look, I know how to talk to these people. I understand what's going on. Ezra, Nehemiah, these are guys from Persia who are in the inner circle. This isn't just somebody writing some tale. These are people in the know who saw these things happen, giving us a, a reliable account. I see here in this letter that they write to Artaxerxes, the text of which we are given in its entirety, four basic tactics that are often employed by sneaky adversaries through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and even to this very day. First of all, overplaying how many people are angry. They list everybody, everyone's job, where everyone lives, and they talk about the whole province, which is called Beyond the River. There's a map in the back of your bulletin there. If you look at it, find the Persian Gulf. It's kind of in the lower right-hand corner there. You see those two big rivers coming out? Those are, of course, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Euphrates is the one on your left, and that is the beginning of Beyond the River. Beyond that, all the way to the border of Egypt, all of that is one big province. And now they're writing, essentially saying, listen, everybody here in Beyond the River knows that these Jews are a big problem and that they are going to do all sorts of awful things and get up to all sorts of mischief, and so you've got to listen to us. We are speaking on behalf of many people. This sometimes, once in a while, can happen in the church. I remember I had a professor... Bill Rudd, uh, he, he's now retired, but he was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Muskegon in Fruitport. Uh, and you'd think it'd be in Muskegon, but it's in Fruitport. And uh, I remember him saying more than once, listen, people will use this tactic. Someone will come up to you and say, Pastor, a lot of people are upset about X, Y, or Z. There's just there's a lot of people. I'm here on behalf of a contingent of faceless hidden people. And that you should always say, okay, why don't you go get them? And come back to me and we'll do this biblically. And if they say, oh, no, 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 they'd rather remain anonymous, then tell them, I'm going to treat that just like I would treat an anonymous letter and drop it in the trash. But I would gladly talk to you about what's bothering you. He made it seem like this happens a lot. And maybe some point in his ministry it did. This today, by the way, is my 17th anniversary of the first time I preached from this pulpit. And I've only ever had that happen two times uh, where someone over, and I've done it like 30 times, but uh, tried to make it seem like there was a bigger group of people behind them than there really was. But the fact is that although they're overblowing their numbers, the Jews really are outnumbered horribly by all the people around them. That is going to be the situation for a holy people. By definition, they're set apart from everyone else. So they're outnumbered by the rest of the world. And a lot of people around them, 
don't like having them there. Secondly, the tactic we see is downplaying the position of their opponents, the Jews. So they overplay how many people are upset. They downplay the position of their opponents. They call them those people who came up here. Those who came up. Not the people who have returned to their ancestral home where they lived for a thousand years by the king's own decree. No, those people who came up here. Like there's just this parade of people coming up and these are the worst of them. Like how people in the UP think of tourists, right? Just, all oh, those people coming up. No, these people belong there. The king has acknowledged it. God gave you that land, and that God, Yahweh, stirred up my heart to send you back there to worship him. But no, they just act like they're another group of people wandering into our backyard looking to cause trouble. Third, they point to past rebellion. This is a classic adversary move. Remember the word Satan, Satan, just means adversary, and our great adversary, Satan, loves to do this one. In fact, he loves to do all of these. He will absolutely overplay how many and how difficult your troubles, your adversaries are. Your tribute, oh, it's absolutely insurmountable. He will downplay your position that you are in Christ. Absolutely, oh, look at you, are just some nobody. Uh, actually, I'm spoken for by Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, and he will point to past rebellion all day long. They say, look, if you, if you will just search the history, you'll find that in the past, they've been a problem for other kings. You can't rule them. That you just absolutely can't. They're trouble beginning to end. Now, of course, the Old Testament prophets made it clear that God's people acquiesced to Gentile demands way too much, meaning they rebelled way too little. But yeah, they did rebel sometimes. You've got people who've been around for many centuries. There will be some rebellion in their past. Fourth, fear-mongering. And the enemy loves this one to this day as well. They tell him, listen, here's what's going to happen if you let them keep building. If you let them build these walls around their city. They're not going to pay taxes. They're not going to pay any of the fees. They're not going to pay any of the tribute. They're just going to sit back and laugh in your face. And then what's going to happen? You're going to lose the entire province. The whole thing. To quote Cliff Clavin from Cheers, next thing you know, we'll have Hitler in the White House. I mean, this is over the top. And then coach said, gosh, Cliffy, I could do without that. <laughs> but the, the, the idea that this one little group of people, historically at this point, rather incidental, insignificant, except for considering that the, they're part of salvation history, if they rebel, it's just dominoes. The whole thing's going to fall apart. You will have nothing. Nothing left. They must be saying that what will happen is they will respond in rebellion and then their neighbors around them will also rebel. Everyone will kind of go, oh, this is a, a way to do things. We don't have to pay taxes anymore. Yeah, yeah, okay. That must be what they're suggesting. Thank goodness people don't use this kind of over-the-top scare tactic in the church today. But I see here another parallel with Esther, I think, in verse 16 here. B because you remember back in Esther 1, after... Queen Vashti had refused to appear before King Ahasuerus. And he was very offended, and he was, he was very mad, and he wasn't quite sure what to do. And Memukin, one of his advisors, said, listen, this is what's going to happen. Everyone in Persia is going to hear what happened with your wife, 
And they're all going to start despising their husbands. And then wives are going to be going nuts in the streets everywhere. We've got to put a stop to this. Here's the same basic thought from advisors to a Persian king. Other provinces are going to see that they're not paying taxes and that they're building their walls and that they're thumbing their noses at the crown and they also will rebel. And it worked. He fell for it just as easily as his father had. Uh, And that's kind of the end of their building for quite some time. I want to point out how syrupy and sweet the language in this letter is. Oh, we uh, eat the king's salt and and serve under the king, and it would not be fitting for us to let anyone besmirch his his great name. (laughs) Last time, when we were looking at the response of the people to the Samaritans, I said this might sound a little rude, right? They just say it. They just say, listen, you have no part in this. We are the people of Yahweh. Yahweh told us to build it. Cyrus told us to build it. We are going to build it alone. That's a little rude, maybe. This is anything but rude. And it calls to mind Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Sometimes just saying things the way they are is better And certainly better than flattering. Flattering, of course, is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back, just as gossip is saying behind their back what you would never say to their face. Well, the king responds then, and he responds in verse 17 and following. Let me just read the whole letter. It is short. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, Greetings. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition has been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should danger grow to the hurt of the king? Well, he did his research. Undoubtedly, what he found was that in about 700 B.C., Hezekiah rebelled against the Assyrians. In about 600 B.C., Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon. It's now 450 B.C., and Artaxerxes says, well, they're overdue for their centenary revolt. Once every hundred years, they do something we don't like. And so I'm going to punish them, uh, the people alive now, for, for the crimes of their fathers. Or maybe these mighty kings are what he's afraid of. It's not 100% sure what he's talking about there. Either he's saying they were able to revolt even against very mighty people who had subjected them. Or I think he's saying, no, mighty kings tend to rise up from within them. And we have to be careful that that doesn't happen again. We don't know whether or not he was uh, aware that Zerubbabel himself was in the line of King David, the mightiest of mighty kings. And of course, that makes him an ancestor of Jesus, the king of kings. At any rate, all building is to stop effective immediately and continuing indefinitely. And speaking of connections to Esther, don't miss the irony here when you put these two stories side by side. That Mordecai actually did inform King Xerxes of a danger to his reign, to his own person. He saved his life. There's a plot against you. And the thanks he gets initially is that his people are all marked for destruction. Rather than being rewarded, 
They're punished, it seems. Here in verse 14, these Samaritan leaders warn Artaxerxes of a non-existent danger and are immediately rewarded with the granting of every request that they make. It's not fair. I don't have any more on that. It's just not fair. Sometimes things aren't fair. Let's go then to the end here of verse 23 and 24, summary statements. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. No more rebuilding the walls. Then in verse 24, we're back in the main timeline and we read, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. You can see here, Ezra's doing something very clever by putting side by side and parallel columns these two stories, one of which is resolved and one of which is not. And he ends them both, one in one verse, one in the next, and one story here is going to continue right away in, in chapter five. Three takeaways from this text for the church today. First, lies and slander about God's people are absolutely going to be the norm. We can't get shocked and offended and all in a huff when we are lied about or slandered. We can't act as though Jesus did not warn us this would happen and tell us we are blessed when it does. That was the call to worship, right, from the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and end with, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are kind of the bookends around it. Being poor in spirit means thinking lowly of yourself, putting yourself down before God and lifting him up, recognizing that he is where all of our value comes from. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And when you do that, you can endure slander and lies. And then he follows that up with blessed are you. He breaks the formula. Blessed are you when people lie about you and accuse you and say all sorts of evil, false things about you for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Lies and slander are the norm. Now, slander means to destroy someone with words, usually false words, or true words with a spin on them that give them an extra kind of cutting edge. Look at all the lies and half-truths and technically truth statements and strategic omissions here in this letter to King Artaxerxes and compare them to those of Jesus' accusers. Oh, we heard him say, tear down the temple, I'll build it again in three days. Not giving the context of what he meant, that it was his body that he was talking about. And in that case, they also bribed witnesses just as the enemies, the Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews had bribed people to work against them. Or look at Paul's adversaries. Look at what they say about him when they drag him in front of the people of Ephesus or when they drag him out uh, before kings and rulers. They lie about him at every turn. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 18, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There Peter tells us we will be blessed when we are slandered as long as the slander is really slander. Sometimes people get a little martyr complex going when they serve Jesus and think, well, if I'm a bit of a jerk, then people will not like me. And then I can say, well, they spit on Jesus too. Peter warns against such a thing. No, be kind, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, but do not compromise. And then when they lie about you, rejoice and be glad and remember they did the same thing to Jesus. This is from the very beginning of church history. There were three main lies told about the early church. First one is that they were atheists. That might seem silly because the whole thing is about worshiping God, but because they would not worship any of the gods of the Roman pantheon or they would not burn any incense to them or make any sacrifices to them, they said, you're atheists. One god, that's practically none. So they called them atheists. Secondly, they called them cannibals. You can see where that comes from. They go in these, these rooms and eat the flesh of their Savior and drink his blood. Probably didn't help matters uh, in, in the spreading of this rumor that in the early church, there would be visitors in the back that would stand with the hearers and they could listen. If they weren't baptized, they weren't part of the church. They were welcome there. But when it was time to take the Lord's Supper, they said, okay, you need to leave. We're about to do this very special thing. And then they go, they just said something about eating flesh and drinking blood. So they, they said they were cannibals. And then they said they were incestuous because they would greet one another with a holy kiss and because husbands and wives themselves would call each other brother and sister in Christ. And everyone's calling each other brother and sister. And it looked to outsiders who were looking for rumors to spread that maybe there's some weird stuff going on in that Christian church. We have evidence of these three lies being told about Christians from the earliest days of the church. It should be expected. It is the norm. But why is it the norm? Because the lost do not like being reminded that they're lost. They don't like it one bit. Don't be expecting the world to applaud your faithfulness. We often get into this, this thought, like, if I, if I do this well, and I really do it well, the world will have to look at me and go, well, I at least respect your effort. Not necessarily. The world may look at your faithfulness and hate you all the more. The people living around Jerusalem, they, they say to them, basically, why are you so narrow-minded? We want to help with the temple. We want to say in how it works. We want a little share in the temple. Does it really matter what name we give God so long as we sort of all worship a higher power? Does it really matter if we worship other gods as well? Does, does he care? Is he that petty? Aren't we all God's children? Why are you being so difficult about this? There's nothing new under the sun. All of this stuff continues to this very day. The people of Judah could have turned it around, by the way, and said, why do you care so much? Why do you insist on being granted a hand in our temple? Why can't we have our beliefs and worship in our way and you have yours? After all, you don't see us trying to force our views on you Samaritans. And I often think the same thing today. But then again, I'm a Baptist and from the very beginning, we've said religious toleration and live and let live and love your neighbor was the way to go. But Psalm 2 asks the question, why do the nations rage? And if you read that, you get to the end, you recognize they rage because they hate Christ. Our faithfulness to Jesus as faithful followers of him, it's going to be offensive to some people. And it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus' own presence was offensive to the people in his day. It's so offensive that his enemies killed him. If they can be enraged by the spotless, sinless son of God who preached, turn the other cheek and love your enemies, 
they will absolutely find something about you and me to be angry about. They were exclusive in a world that was inclusive and religiously pluralistic, just as biblical Christians are today, just as those were in the time of Xerxes and Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And these worldlings, writing their little letter, describe holiness unto the Lord as rebellious and evil in verse 12. To them, it's rebellion, failing to pay our due to the culture and its values. And faithfulness to the one true God is considered wicked. In fact, it's perhaps one of the only things left that's still considered wicked in our culture that the world will actually condemn. Secondly, we see here that opposition will persist. It won't necessarily come in a flash and be gone. It may come wave after wave. In fact, that's kind of how Jesus describes tribulation. He says it comes like labor pains, which implies there is some time of relief in between. I remember when, when Aaron was in labor, they had her walking around the, the hallway, and I was walking around with her, and we were playing Scrabble on my Palm Pilot. Only time I ever beat her easily, because she was all distracted, because every once in a while she'd be like, Argh. but... Sometimes the waves even come right on top of each other, one and another and another. Where the, the Samaritan princes getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to oppose the God of the universe today? Probably not, but that is what they were doing, and they did it tirelessly and daily and continually. And for a time, the people opposing God's work had the upper hand. And when this happens, it's hard to grasp. They stood their ground... They refused to compromise the truth, and rather than being rewarded for it, things got even harder, and their progress slowed to a crawl, if not a total standstill, for quite a while, like more than 70 years, and that coming right after 70 years in exile. It doesn't compute for us when we do the right thing, and as a result, things don't get better. They get worse. We get it. When they try to build the Tower of Babel in direct defiance of God's command, just don't all stay in one city and try and build something big. Okay, they all stay in one city, they start building, and he blows that up. And it never gets finished. And it sits there as kind of a memorial to the rebellion of wicked hearts. What we don't understand is when they're building something that God has commanded, and they're faithful about it, and the result is that it comes to a standstill. This is what we have to get. God is willing to carry out his plans and fulfill his purposes and keep his promises over long periods of time. God is in it for the long game. And to him, they're not even that long of periods of time. Setting timelines is his business. Carrying out his plans, fulfilling his purposes is his business. Serving him faithfully in good times or bad, in season or out of season, in the words of St. Paul, that is our business. And of course, what hasn't been rebuilt here in the time of Artaxerxes is not the, the temple, but the wall around the city. And it has now been generations, and the wall continues to sit in ruins. It's rubble. It's been generations since Cyrus said, go on back and start building, but they are paralyzed by their enemy to the point where they are just like, this is it. This is the way things are. And considering that one of the first priorities in rebuilding a city would be repairing and fortifying the wall, the defensive wall around it, 
this is an awful indictment of the, the mindset of this people. And we see how quickly a temporary pause becomes the status quo in something that we're just fine with. Now, there's always been a mix of truth in the enemy's lies. Ever since the beginning, you will not surely die, but will become like God, knowing good and evil. The fact is that we, God's people, do have a history of rebellion. First, a rebellion against God, which then he has had to send his son Jesus to die on the cross to cover. But now, rebellion against the world and the flesh and the devil. And the enemy should be afraid of our great king. And no matter what he tries, we will be faithful until he answers our prayers and rewards our efforts. Thirdly and finally, I think we see here that we cannot ultimately rely on the rulers of this world to help us. Even when we get a good, just, God-fearing authority like King Cyrus, thank God, certainly, but no, it won't last. We must not get comfortable relying on worldly powers or get too cozy with temporal leaders or political parties. This sends us right back to the very syncretism that they were rejecting when they said to those people, we can't have you building our temple with us. You've taken the worship of the one true God and mixed it in with all sorts of other stuff, all sorts of other idols. It is becoming more and more and more common to meet Christians who have blended in whatever their political affiliation is with the gospel and turned it into some kind of unholy frap of religio-political views. They don't see a distinction of ultimate allegiance to the God who sits on the throne and temporal subjection to the authorities that God has ordained. That's how the scriptures lay these things out. God had stirred up King Cyrus, but God's enemies stirred up his successors to oppose him. Being in power, by the way, all but guarantees that there's going to be a slide toward political expedience, and we see that here. I mean, just think about the, the position of the Jews in Egypt at first. You've read the book of Genesis. They went down into Egypt, into the land of Goshen. Why? There was food down there. They got down there and they said, we're sitting pretty. One of our own, Joseph, is second in command over the whole empire. He wears the king's signet ring, which means when he says something, Pharaoh says it. It's the authority of Pharaoh. And they were looking good. And they thought, all right, we could get comfortable here. Egypt's a good place for us. And Egypt's rulers are just and good and kind. Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Hold those political affiliations and loyalties loosely. Hold tightly to the king of kings, who will not forget you. And remember, the enemy was right about one thing when they wrote their letter. We're going to rebel against the wicked values of this world, against the gods that people worship now, new names for the same old idols. We will give to Caesar what is due to Caesar and be subject to earthly authorities in keeping with what the scripture commands, but we will give ourselves only to the God of heaven and earth. But the world will not love us for our faithfulness. Many will hate us. Many will slander us. Some will oppose us with all their beings just as Jesus promised. They may even come in like in verse 23 and 24 and force us to stop doing the work of the Lord for a time. But we're way at the beginning of this story. We're in chapter 4, 
Ezra and Nehemiah is 23 chapters long. We're in the first round of the rope-a-dope. There is persistent faithfulness even through seasons of slander and suffering and stagnation. And we see when the people begin to flag and they start to forget about the promises and just turn to the details of their own lives and looking to their own well-being, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come roaring in and say, don't forget faithfulness even in times of persecution. Enduring faithfulness. Persistent faithfulness. Honoring God. We will be honored by God in the end. The rope-a-dope. When you can't take it, hide behind the one who can take every punch on your behalf. We already know the outcome. Our God wins by knockout. And if he's for us, who can be against us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage that gives us a couple letters that might be easily skimmed over. But Lord, show us a great window into the heart of our adversaries and an even greater window into the heart of our God that you will be with us to the very end. And when it seems like there's no way we're getting off the ropes, we know that in the end you win. We know that you will never leave us or forsake us. We know that you will stand by us and hold us up. We know that you are a God who loves and cares for your children and fights on our behalf. We praise you for this and thank you for all of the gifts you give us. In your holy name, amen.